Members of the TalkScript team were on site at NEJSConf 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a four-part series to help share the essence of NEJSConf 2019. This episode contains interviews with Ash Banizek and Tatiana Mack around a theme of the importance of using our voice. I am here with Ash Banizek. Yeah. Did I say that right? You got it pretty well, yeah. Oh, come on, correct me. Well, uh, people either say Banizek or Banajik. It's just depending on how Polish I'm feeling that day. But Banizek is generally what people call it. Okay, all right. Ash Banizek. Mm -hmm. All right. And you gave a talk today on storytelling. So it was kind of like a talk on how to give a talk, which was kind of interesting. I try to be as meta as possible. Yeah, it was was quite (laughs) meta. It was like, all right, I'm going to... Give a talk on how to give talks while these other people are giving talks around me, and then you now can you critique. can critique them. Now you yes. can critique them. Here's your checklist to, yeah. <laughs> to see what see, they're doing. See how they're doing. You know, it's interesting that you related giving a talk to telling a story. Why would you kind of bring storytelling into giving a talk? I mean, if I'm giving you information, why why wouldn't I just give you information? Sure. So I think one of the things that people, when they think about talks, they're very focused on what their slides are going to be, the PowerPoint and that sort of stuff. But really when it comes to getting people to remember what you're doing, you need to tell a story. Because if you think about different things that you hold on to, it's those stories that that really resonate with people. Right. Well, if you think about it, kind of the great stories in history were handed down in story form. Exactly. You know, like all our oral traditions. All our oral traditions, right? You think of like the grim fairy tales, mm-hmm. right? You don't just tell your children, "Don't go off in the woods by yourself." Right. You give them a reason not to. Exactly. You know, your talk was very good, relating storytelling to giving it, basically making it interesting. Right. Right. Because a lot of what we do is not interesting. <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of things that, just in technology, I mean, you talk to your relatives or friends and they just don't, they glaze over, they don't understand what you're saying and you're trying to explain it to them and sometimes you just got to break it down into a story or into metaphors to just make it more relatable. Yeah, yeah. For years, my family would ask me, what do you do for a job? You know, or people, people, you know, that I would bump into that, what are you doing for a job now? Oh, I make web applications. What's a web application? Yeah. And I'd be, well, it's like Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I make Facebook, yeah, but not I, I Facebook. I make Facebook, but not Facebook. And they're like, oh, I get it, you know. And I think one of your bigger points was the use of metaphor and simile mm-hmm. in relating to your audience, like knowing yes. your audience and finding a simile or a metaphor that would relate to them. One of the things that I use the most is basically construction examples. Yes. A lot of people understand how physical structures are created yeah. and that you start with a foundation, you kind of build your way up. Mm-hmm. And if there's a problem with the foundation, there's going to be a problem with the structure itself. Right. Um, if you remove certain studs in your wall, your roof can collapse. Correct. So people sort of understand that structural metaphor. Yes. But when we talk about code, a lot of people don't understand that how interrelated code is. And yeah. if you just take one piece out, the whole application can come tumbling down. So a lot of what I am doing is trying to extrapolate on, okay, this is what code means in a real sense. Yeah. So that you actually can physically see it in your mind and hold it and touch onto it 
And I can, I mean, if you want to even get more descriptive, I've actually made blueprints. What I do is I say, okay, here is your acceptance criteria. You need, you know, we need lots of windows and we need two bedrooms and we need a bedroom that's grander all the rest and the bathroom and stuff like that. And so then I'll just like slop together a house that meets all the requirements in the document, but it looks terrible. Yeah. And then I'll make another house that's based on actual research about, okay, what, what houses should be like, how the house is going to be used, what sort of environment the house is going to be right. in. And then I show the picture side by side, which house would you buy? And that's the physical cost of something. So yeah. If you don't actually research it, you're going to be selling a product potentially at a loss because you're going to be begging people to use it because no one exactly. wants to touch it. Exactly. And, and a lot of times... Just kind of, kind of thinking about that model, it might be cheaper to make the, the really crappy yeah. house. Maybe. Because yeah. it, it's going to take less time. Yeah. You Potentially. Have pay, you have to yeah. pay your workers less, you know? Yes. You could use shoddier materials, yeah, exactly. those sorts there of things, right? But nobody's going to want to buy it. So at the end of the day, the bottom line is going to be negative because nobody's going to want to use it. And you can use the nicest materials you want, but if it's not functional, yeah. no one's going to want to buy exactly. a marble house. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So. Or everybody's going to complain about it. Exactly. And no, then nobody will actually want to use it, right? Yep. Talking about the, the metaphor thing, you had brought up the the firefighter mm-hmm. metaphor, which I thought was, that one stuck with me. So one of the things that I notice a lot, when, when teams kind of ignore usability and user experience until the very end of the project, until they've released it, and then users are starting to complain and panic, and then they, they all go into firefighting mode, and they work as a team, and they put out that fire, and they make some hot fixes, and they really yeah. get it done. And it's a very glamorous thing because you are very actively putting out that fire. And they're putting patting each other on the back. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, accolades go around. Exactly. Yeah. But what I do is I'm more of a fire marshal, so I'm trying to make sure the fire doesn't get started in the first place. And it's not as sexy of a job, right? It's just not exciting. <laughs> it was pretty funny because you put up a, a picture of like a really strong firefighter. She's she's all business, yeah. you know. She's gonna break down a door. And then there was Fire Marshal Bill. Yeah, he's was just sitting behind a desk, just sitting behind a desk with a big old smile on his face. But the the big part of that is. You know, these, these developers, not only are they the firefighters, they're also the arsonists. They're the ones who are setting all these fires. And so my point is... It was so funny when, when you brought that up and there's there's this picture on the screen of this this house engulfed in flames. Yeah, you can't be a hero. You can't be a if hero. If you start the fire. If you start the fire. And, and I and immediately, I think I turned to my neighbor and I, and I said, well, there's a movie about that. It's called Backdraft. <laughs> And I the, wasn't trying to rip off any movies. No, but I, I mean, like, that that brought back imagery in yeah. my head, and that metaphor stuck. Yeah. And I think that's really tangible, That, and it's very powerful. When we're communicating things to others, even in tech, we can be as accurate as possible, but if we're, dare I say, boring, but if we're not relatable, then it's going right to go right over people's heads. Yeah. And their eyes are going to glaze over, and it's going to take them two, three, four times to get it. So there were several other metaphors. That's the one that stuck for me. You can't be a hero if you start, if the, you fire. start the fire. And that that's something great. that I really try to, to get developers to understand is really all that prep work. It's going to make the release so much smoother and you really, people shouldn't be super praised for firefighting efforts I agree. because we should be watching, well, why did that fire start in the first place? Exactly, yep. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Kind of side note, I think that just creates a toxic work environment. Yeah. Because then people are working overtime 
and then you're praising them for working overtime and you're going to burn them out quicker. Right. And the people that aren't having those fires, they don't get as much attention either. Exactly. The, the ones that are responsible yeah. aren't being praised. So you're actually being praised for being yeah. irresponsible. Like, exactly. Because you got so much more attention and now yeah. that's going to go in your performance review. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. crazy sometimes. What, what did you do? Well, I wrote good code so I didn't have to do much. Yeah. I was a fire marshal. It's <laughs> just not as exciting. Exactly. The 10x engineer thread. There you go. That set me off. I, anyway, that's a completely different topic. Anyway. <laughs> yes, um, I get into that one. Right. You talked about using humor, and I think that I like humor. I don't know too many people who don't like humor, but you made some points about when you're communicating using humor, there's some things to look out for. Yes. Well, first thing, you got to know your audience. So you want to make sure that whatever type of humor you're using is appropriate for right. the people you're talking to and the space that you're talking to. You don't want to necessarily treat a tech talk like an open mic night. Yeah. And also, if I'm doing a project and I'm you know, talking to marketing and sales and doing a presentation there versus I'm talking to an external audience with customers versus right. I'm talking to a tech conference. Correct. I'm going to use different forms of humor. I use a lot more 80s humor in tech conferences <laughs> than I would with, say, the legal team. Right. So, I mean, even within an organization, talking to the BAs or talking to the project managers, you're going to use, you're going to use different references than you are with your, your devs. Yeah. I want to make sure that I get everyone on the same page. A lot of times I'm going to be talking to all of them at once, but sure, yeah. uh, different things will resonate differently with people. Yeah. Absolutely. And people are more sensitive about different yeah. things than others. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. But really the, the whole point of humor is to kind of disarm your audience. A lot of people come up, they might have their shields up. Yeah. And so humor is just kind of a way to, to just get everybody to lower their shields and swords, laugh together, and kind of build that better understanding of each other. It just it just really disarms delights and, and helps people kind of start to pay attention and open up a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. We said that the humor should be infrequent. Like you said, you don't yeah. want it to be an open mic night. Like you're not be there to like to be you know, the next Ellen or whoever, You know what? Right? I would love to be the next Ellen. Right, but, I, you know, I don't think too many people in our industry could do that, right? Probably not. Oh, what you had said was allow for pauses. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to use humor, at least, let them, at least let them laugh a little bit so that yeah. way they don't miss anything. Exactly. A lot of people, what they'll do is they'll step on their applause or they'll step on their laughs. Yeah. And that's just something you have to have that patience for is for let sure. the audience react. Sometimes it'll take them a second just a couple beats to even pick up that you made a joke yeah. and it's okay to let that sit yeah, for a little while absolutely absolutely yeah. otherwise they'll stop laughing at some point if you keep stepping on your your jokes yeah. because they don't want to miss anything so at the end you kind of gave a list of things kind of like cautionary things not to do just Could, some tips yeah some tips there you go yeah. yeah what are some of those i thought they were good yeah so i mean one of one of my main tips obviously you know, you have to practice, but yeah. being succinct is, is one of the top things I tell people. You know, write down what you want to say and then cut it down to the gist of it. Otherwise, if you're you're just kind of walking around the topic like I am doing probably right now. <laughs> you're fine. You're going to start losing people. So yeah. that was one of the things. Also, make sure you have a call to action. And what I mean by that is when I leave your talk, what am I going to do next? Yeah. You want to make it absolutely clear for the audience what you expect them to do next. Right, exactly. And for my talk, I expect you to resolve to never give a talk that you yourself would not want to sit through. I wrote that down and I circled it. (laughs) 
So that's, you know, that's one of my call to actions. Also, I always tell people with talks, tell them what they're going to, what you're going to tell them. And then in your talk, you tell them. And at the end, tell them what you told them. Well, you tell them what you told them, yeah. And it's that repetition repetition that helps people remember your talk a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And remember the key points because you're reinforcing your key points again. Yeah. And if your talk is telling a story, it's good up front to say, look, I want you to pay attention to these elements of the story. And then you get to the end and it's like, all right, what did we learn from the story? Yeah. These key elements I told you to listen for. Yes. Yeah, you're just setting those expectations. Yeah. This is what, and so people can follow along and they don't feel as lost or is, is this going anywhere? Yeah. Because some people, you'll get midway through the speech and they'll kind of be wondering when you're going to stop talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I like to give everybody a roadmap so there's no wondering. Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, I think these are tips that I really think everybody can use. It was a talk on how to give talks. Yeah. But I think even, even in like day-to-day, as we're communicating with each other, if we know where each other's coming from, we can better relate to one another and try to bridge that gap. You said at the beginning of your talk that you were talking in the context of between the developers and the UX and your first UX job was... It was I don't want to say disaster. It was, yeah, not, it was not a disaster. Yeah, it was challenging because one, they didn't really know what I was supposed to do and two, they didn't really know how to utilize me. Yeah. And so whenever I would give my deliverables... They would be kind of befuddled. Like, yeah. Why are you doing this when we just want you to make a radio button, for right. example? And they wouldn't understand why they just couldn't do it the way they've always done it, the way right. they wanted to do it, yeah. the way that was easiest to code, potentially. And it took me a while to figure out, okay, everything that I'm saying, all the technical, like UX technical jargon I'm talking about, they do not understand. Yeah. And it doesn't speak to them at all. So I need to make, I need to reevaluate how I'm talking to them and make it resonate with them. Yeah, exactly. And so being able to bridge the gap between, between people is very valuable, whether you're giving a talk or just, just talking to somebody on the street. Right. You know, talking to your loved ones, being able to relate to, to one another. So I really appreciate your talk. Thanks for coming on and letting me interview you. Yeah, no, it's so. it a pleasure. Okay, we are back recording a, another post-talk interview with all of our exciting guests. I'm your host, Neil Roberts. I'm here with Eric Osmondson. And would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Tatiana Mack. Awesome. And Tatiana gave a, a very interesting talk entitled How Privilege Defines Performance and, and touching on privilege with a bit of a tech slant. Yeah, I think that so often in tech, we like to think of ourselves as the stewards of the technology that we make. And so we often do things to neutralize the role that we have in tech and to, and it's out of a good place. We're trying to focus our technology on our users and do research. But unfortunately, I don't think that it's really possible for us to remove the perspective that we bring to the technology that we build. And I think when we start to think about that perspective through the lens of privilege, that even the notion of working in tech is is a very privileged concept, we can start to see how we can often do harm to communities and communities of people where they have less privileges than we do. And I think the the good point that you made is that privilege isn't like a binary thing. Like it, people like to think that they are or they aren't. You're just kind of asking, like, hey, take off your glasses for a second and do the extra little bit of legwork to make sure that you're not building something just because it seems like it's what you should build. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that we 
we don't know what we don't know. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with technology is that my talk focuses a lot on centering and the viewport that we tend to center in tech. And things that are outside of that viewport are not things that we have to think about because they're not our lived experiences. But it's so systematic, right? Like everything we read, watch, every technology that we make centers around this one core experience. And so we have to work really hard to look outside of that perspective to think of things. And I think if we look at our circle of friends, we tend to like to congregate around people that think like us and have the same hobbies as us. It's natural. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, you know, self-sorting that takes place, you know, in one's personal life and one's professional life, you know, uh, in all these aspects. And, you know, as you touched on in, in your talk, a lot of web de- development types tend to fit a specific profile. Mm-hmm. And so that ends up, you know, being reflected in the products that get delivered, you know, and that's something that we need to focus on and realize that that's happening before, you know, we can even take the steps to remedy that. Yeah, and I loved in Cass's talk how they talked about in hiring, we need to make sure that we hire someone that looks differently than us. And I think in tech, often we'll hear that phrase of diversity of thought, which as a concept, I'm totally behind, right? Like we should hire people that think differently than us. Cognitive models, we can assimilate in that way. But the notion of just hiring a bunch of people that look like us, that maybe theoretically think differently, it's like, well, if they look like us, there are many aspects to their lived experiences that are going to be the same. So how differently can they really think from us? What modes of thinking are are we leaving out by hiring people that all look like us? Well, not us, like you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you said that it's not just enough to make something for someone else. You need to make something with someone else. It's like a step that people can feel like they don't have to do. You know, I just, I thought what it would be like to not be vision impaired and I made it for those people. But like you kind of saying, you pointing out that like you need to just involve them with the process was a cool thought. Yeah, and I think even in that notion, we often see in the accessibility space these empathy recreations or simulations that we try to do where we blindfold people or we only allow people to use one hand. And that is extremely ableist, for one, and reductionist because that's essentially saying to a blind person that I can recreate your lived experience by putting this blindfold on myself. And that's that's not possible. So, yes, not only inviting people into the spaces to be creators, but I think in leadership. Like, envision a tech company where the person who's at the helm making the decisions from the get-go is vision impaired or is black and queer or any of these marginalized groups, the company's going to operate much differently because of the experiences that person's had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, one of your quote-unquote hot takes was that empathy is a scam. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think that is a hot take, <laughs> but, you know, does encompass, you know, those ideas. Yeah, my wife and I like to joke about that, like, I'm good at putting myself in someone else's shoes, and she's good at feeling what other people are feeling. And what I always try to say is, like, I'm empathetic, but it's useless. Like, I can, I still need to put it into practice, right? Like, that's something that I think people can tend to miss. Yeah, and I think that there's a certain level, not to pick on you, I think we all try to be empathetic, but I think there's a certain level of presumption with empathy that you can even experience what someone Mm, else's experience. So that's where I try to shift from empathy to trust, and then also empathy to compassion. Having compassion that the person's going through pain or something difficult, or compassion for something that I totally don't understand, but that does require trusting them. Yeah, replacing empathy with with trust, I thought was a cool way to phrase that, for sure. Another quote that I pulled was privilege alone is harmless you're discussing the fact that 
we are all privileged and we need to confront that and that privilege isn't inherently you know a bad thing but that it gains us power and mm-hmm. you know and that's more where the problem lies yeah a huge aspect of the talk is i talk about how we tend to look towards our oppression right so mm-hmm. i think this has happened to maybe all of us we're going through something difficult and then someone says to us like yeah but like I grew up poor too, so I totally know what that's like, or I've injured myself, so I understand what your chronic illness is like. And I think when we do that, we forget that we have access to so many things with our privilege, with regards to, even you think about people in the gender binary. I think about this every time I I approach the bathrooms, is if you identify squarely on the gender binary, when you approach a bathroom, there's a certain level of intuition with it, right? That you're just like, all right, okay, I gotta find whichever one has the little person that looks like me. If I'm a man, I look for pants. If I'm a woman, I look for skirt. That is such a taxing decision to have to make when you're not on the gender binary. That's essentially asking someone to think about their gender identity before they use the bathroom, something that we all do multiple times a day every day. That's not something that people on the gender binary ever even consider. And so that compounds against other things that happen to them. And that's why I think when you're multiply marginalized, it's just the common thing I hear people say who are multiply marginalized is they're just exhausted. It's exhausting living in a world that's been crafted in a particular way. From an accessibility standpoint, I never have to think about access to the stage. I recently wrote a speaker writer for this reason is that if someone is using a mobility aid, like a wheelchair or a walker, it's going to be very hard for them to get on the stage themselves without a ramp. All the conferences I've spoken at, not very many of them have a ramp access. Mm. I don't have to think about that. So that's the way in which it gives us power is that we can then take all that energy that most people have to focus around these micro decisions And we can use that energy to reshift it elsewhere Mm. into things we make or into building joy for ourselves. And that's such an immense privilege. Absolutely. You talked about, you know, a couple books during your talk. I just listened to an interesting book called Invisible Women that was discussing just the male bias in the world. And it had some discussion about even just snowplow roots and are (laughs) just inherently male focused just because they focus on the commuter routes versus, Mm. you know, the side roads where, Mm. you know, women are using more often. And it was a good discussion of all of these things that come up that are just implicit and people don't think about on a a daily basis. And I thought your talk did a good job of kind of bringing those to the forefront and like not even specifically, but just raising the thought that this is a thing that we need to think about, not just in tech, but in our daily lives. Yeah. I think that one aspect about it is that the raising of consciousness is such a huge part that by you reading that book, you're going to consider those things as you're out and about in the world is going to be a small reminder. And that's why I try, you know, when talking about solutions, which when you talk about more abstract terms of like the talk I give, solutions aren't as tangible as the other technical talks that we hear. Again, technical in air quotes, but (laughs) these technical talks have clearer solutions. And that's why I try to focus the solution on just expanding your worldview, watching movies, reading books, things that will help you to identify and to perceive these things more frequently because for the people that live it they have to for their safety it's a fight or flight mechanism that's been ingrained into them because of the way society has crafted the world we have for those of us that think that we're like very thoughtful in terms of like the user interfaces and stuff we design I like the question of why is male before female in the drop down of so many gender selection tools 
Because, like, I mean, as far as I know, the majority of population in the world is female, right? Yes. Even by a small margin, but it's just one of those things where you're like, why is that? But think about the the millions of points of privilege that have led to that. The reason maybe that it's perpetuated is because there are more male software engineers and developers in the world that they're given all that time when they're not thinking about when they're walking home at night, you know, their own safety. They're able to, to invest into their careers and then they're able to create these form fields and build these frameworks where they get perpetuated into design patterns. And then it's just so pervasive. And when something is that pervasive, and you call light to it, it's very easy for people to be like, well, that's how it's always been. And that's like that bias of, well, that's how it's always been. I think we've all heard that, you know, in in reviews where we're trying to challenge something. So that's why I like to present those examples. (laughs) I can imagine someone just being like, oh man, I'm going to test this a lot. I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm going to make it so that I have to move my mouse less during the example, right? Like, it's just like, that's such a bad reason to design something what you can imagine that just being such an afterthought but then we're not even thinking of it at the right level even that like for the most part there is absolutely i can think of very few examples where you should even be asking someone's gender Mm -hmm. so we're collecting all of this data on people and we're collecting an incomplete subset ostracizing a bunch of people in the meantime and then we're storing it insecurely and then we use it at best when we do use it to perpetuate gender stereotypes to serve people content we think they want based on our gender assumptions so I'm just like all all the while learning that like a bunch of this targeting isn't actually selling more product than (laughs) randomly serving ads so we're not even doing (laughs) capitalism justice no (laughs) that's what's been interesting for me to learn more about is just like all of this work to try to categorize people and put people into boxes seems to be doing nothing economically but it's just a a weird idea we have that like this categorization is important Yeah, I think the power of big data over the past decade has really done a number on tech. And I think it's really put us in this box where we feel as though quantified numerical data is more important than story told lived Mm -hmm. experience data. And that really sucks because it's in those lived experiences that you recognize that all these labels are incomplete Mm -hmm. and not really giving us valuable insight. But it's not trusted, right? Like, I think I can't count how many times I've presented anecdotal data, someone's, a user's real words, Mm -hmm. versus like, well, 83%. Clients are always going to, they're going to remember that 83%, you know? And that's disappointing because that 83% is probably poorly collected and probably incorrectly collected and probably doesn't really tell us a whole lot of the story. Yeah, I love going into like Instagram, like the ad settings where it tells you like what it thinks you're interested in. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever gone to that, but I look at mine and I'm just like, no. <laughs> what does it say? Oh, it says like, I love like country music and like, <laughs> like it's just stuff that I, I'm like, I don't know what I've done that makes you think this. It's because it's listening to you and <laughs> hearing the country yeah, music like, around you in Omaha. It's hearing me secretly listening to country music like <laughs> yeah. while I'm crying in the Maybe shower. Maybe knows you're <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's just like there's so much of the stuff that we're doing where like we're not even right. Mm-hmm. Like first principles, we're not even correct. So like I want people to be able to listen to this talk and just say like, well, what if we're wrong about everything? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that should be wide open to people kind of all the time. Yeah. I am always for the idea, I think, in tech of recognizing and forgiving ourselves a little bit that tech moves at a 
blazingly fast <laughs> speed. Mm. And so we're making large-scale changes to not only the climate and influencing the climate crisis, but to social infrastructures, to politics. We have so much power in this industry to change things in a very quick way without really having time to assess what it is that we're doing and the impact that we have on the world. So wherever I can get us to move intentionally and to fix things, I will. Yeah, well, everyone should go watch this this talk. We've kind of just touched on the bare-bones stuff, but you present like much more of a, of a structured path through... Confronting one's privilege yeah. and, and proceeding from... And even order. what is yeah. privilege. Yeah. So yeah, I encourage everyone to listen. Thank or you. view the talk online. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.